Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Hey, friends, we got a really amazing show for you today. Our guest is on Robico's Quant Equity Research Team and one of my favorite authors. On today's show, we walk through some of our guests' favorite research, including the global market portfolio, how it's evolved over time, the performance, and where crypto fits in today. Then we talk about his research on factor performance dating back to not the 20th, but the 19th century. We also cover his framework for determining expected returns for all major asset classes, what he's seeing today, and why he and his team decided to include climate change and that analysis for the first time this year. Be sure to stick around until the end when we touch on SEND stocks, ESG, and even the tokenization of real estate and other assets. This episode is sponsored by our friends at YCharts. A typical day in the life of a financial advisor calls for back-to-back client meetings, juggling portfolio management, and the consistent desire to improve client relationships. YCharts report and proposal tools could be the missing piece to help you effectively handle these time-consuming tasks. Now more than ever, clients want to hear from their advisors, and with user-friendly templates at your disposal, generating impactful client reports can be easily integrated into your everyday routine, helping you free up time and focus on what matters most enhancing client interactions, and growing AUM. Need to make a clear head-to-head comparison between a client's existing portfolio and your proposed one? Want a seamless way to educate your client and present market trends with minimal effort? Join thousands of users who rely on YCharts to easily answer those questions and much more by leveraging personalized proposal reports to truly showcase your value add. Click the link in the show notes to learn what others are saying about YCharts' comprehensive suite of reporting and proposal generation tools. Get 20% off your initial YCharts professional subscription when you start your free YCharts trial. Click the link in the show notes or tell them Meb sent you for new customers only. Please enjoy this episode with Robico's Lorenz Swinkles. Lorenz, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for inviting me, Meb. You have a beautiful background. Where do we find you today? I'm at home in uh, Oslo, in Norway. Are you originally Norwegian? Where are you originally from? I'm originally from uh, Netherlands, as you can maybe hear from my accent uh, as well. But I moved here, I think, about nine to ten years ago. I moved to Norway, yeah. And what's the vibe? I've never been. It's very high on my bucket list. I'm a skier, so I want to come over and ski. As soon as the world starts reopening again, I'm there. Yeah, you're welcome. Are you a skier? I'm a skier, but in Norway, skiing is cross-country skiing. And downhill skiing is like everybody can do because you just need to be able to stand and then you can go downhill. But the real effort is the cross-country skiing. So I'm not good at it, but I enjoy it. That's the thing. So See, the problem is like everyone in my family does it, but it seems like so much work. But that's part of it, I guess. It's an exercise in the nature. I'm getting better at backcountry skiing. I want to do the hot route in Europe at some point, one of these days. Okay. You are officially one of my favorite authors. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Now, the bad news is I like to read papers in print form rather than on the computer or Kindle. And so the environment has suffered at your hands because I print all your papers. How many papers have you written at this point? Do you know? I think published around 40 
to 50, something like that. Okay. Yeah. But that means that I've written many more, but that's the ones that actually made it. <laughs> right. Well, good. Let's cover all of them today. <laughs> You've written some of my favorites, including arguably one of my very favorites of the past few years. So I thought we'd just really just cannonball in right now and start talking about some of them because I think they're really fantastic. The first one, which is I talk a lot about, and partially because of your work on this, that I feel like is not something that the world really talks that much about until recently because they just didn't have either the data or just kind of a way to talk about it, which is the global market portfolio. So why don't we start there? Tell us what that even means. And then we're going to kind of dig deep and talk about all parts of this portfolio. So what it means is already, it means different things to different people, maybe. I try to do in that, uh, the paper that you refer to, me and my colleagues often got a question, like what is the market? Because capital asset pricing model, many people refer to it and often it's S&P 500 or something, but what is the market? So depending always on who you ask, you got maybe slightly different answers because, well, one takes that data series, the other one takes the other data series, include this asset class or not, etc. So then I said with uh, my colleagues, let's do it right for once. We spent a month of time on it and then we're done. And how it usually goes with projects that you think will last only a month, they can last up to a couple of years. And that's also how this went. What we focused on is not the theoretical market portfolio where everything is in, because if everything is in, then it's very difficult to say what is in it. But we focused on the global invested market portfolio, as we called it, which to us means that we put all financial investors together and see what kind of investments they hold that they could trade with each other. So that means if an investor holds a private home, that's not part of our invested market portfolio, because that's not something that another investor would easily be able to buy. And just to say about financial investors, so there's also many maybe strategic investors that hold a position because governments, for example, because they have some other wishes with a certain company, that's all what we do not include. Only those that really we think are financial investors that would trade with each other. So free floats, you could say to some extent. So tell me what are the main components or what are, you can say, what are all the components, but what are the main components of this portfolio and how big is it today here in 2022 ballpark guess? Not to the decimal point, but, uh, but to, the, to the many trillions. I updated it last week because I do it once a year. I update it as a service to the community to see where we are because I wrote a paper about 10 years ago. And now it's at about 177 trillion US dollars. So let's call it 200. I'll round up. I'm an optimist just to make the numbers easy. What are the big components of that? What fits into the pie chart? Obviously, a large component is global equities, like listed uh, public equities. That's the big part of that pie. Other very large parts is government bonds and investment-grade corporate bonds. Now I have to do it from the top of my head, but uh, I think around 40% or so is equities, 45 maybe, listed equities. And I think the bond portfolios are probably 35 in total or something like that. So you end up with this kind of global market cap portfolio. You alluded to this in the beginning, but just to kind of restate it in terms of magnitude. What are the big missing pieces? You said it's kind of single family housing, which is pretty big. Like, I think if I remember in your paper, it's like, I don't know, what did you say? Was it 50 trillion, 100 trillion? I think that's very different estimates that are really far apart of this. But I think typically what people say is that about the entire market portfolio, the same size of it. So in this case, it would that be 200 trillion or so would be global private real estate or something that it's about the same size as what is the investable market portfolio. So that's obviously a huge part 
And uh, I think that maybe some innovations going forward that risk sharing on that field is also going to be more possible or more likely. But I think that's a big part that is missing. Other part that is missing is human capital. Of course, a lot of the capital that we have is, is human capital. I know that there are some people who try to proxy the value of human capital, but that's something that we didn't go into. It's possible, but it's a huge problem to estimate that. Paper number 41. Yeah, maybe, maybe. But I think those two components are probably going to be yeah, very important. And I mean, when the, I say the private real estate, I think on that you can also, like the corner shop, where it's like a, a self-owned corner shop, we also don't do it because it's not listed equity. So that's those kind of shops. I think, of course, if you add all these together, that's also going to be quite a substantial amount of equity that's in that. So you include private equity, though, but that's the listed. And these questions are so hard to answer. So apologies for making you do math on the spot. But as private companies, like private non-listed, is that a huge chunk? Is it a, would it be kind of a minority, would you guess? Or is it like 20 trillion, 50 trillion? Because in some countries, it's probably more, I would assume. Yeah. So I think this should be coming, if you look at the national statistics offices, they probably have something like where economic activity on these small businesses is from. But I estimate it's huge because I think I forgot how much of the total like uh, labor force is by small to medium enterprises, I think that's huge. So I estimate that the equity would also be quite substantial if you would add all those up. Yeah. We talk about farmland too on the show, which is another one that's hard to allocate to, but it's changing. Like you mentioned, a lot of these things are changing. We bemoan the real estate sector in the United States is so antiquated, but there's a lot of businesses trying to disrupt that, not just on the transaction side and servicing, but also the ownership and ways to kind of securitize and share in that. Anyway, so the global market portfolio, roughly 200 trillion, 40, 60, call it stocks, bonds, ballpark. How much of a bear was that to get all the data and put it all together? I mean, did you just have a sea of interns and poor PhD students or were you doing this or how hard was this? Actually, in some sense, uh, people, they talk these days about the data science. Uh, so uh, I like to call myself a data scientist in the sense that I'm actually digging up a lot of the data myself and evaluating it myself. So it's different maybe than from AI and machine learning data scientist type. But uh, now I gathered this data all myself. And the main problem was not so much to find what the current market portfolio looks like, because the data for on market caps of asset classes today is, well... There's still things like real estate that is always a debate when I mention it, but that can be done. But we decided to go back to 1960 to also make a comparison over time, how the market portfolio had changed over time. And if you go back to 1960, actually before 1985, returns are still available for many asset classes, but to get to market capitalization weights, it was surprisingly difficult. So for corporate bonds, for example, it was extremely difficult. So I went together with a co-author to the... I think they call it the stacks in the library. So that's where normal people can't actually go, but you need a special pass from the librarian to go down in the basement and then dig up books to make with our phones copies of the data and then later type it in by hand to collect that data. So, I mean, that's the historical part, how we actually literally collected it. Yeah. So huge pain in the butt, but a worthwhile venture because it leads you to this paper. And by the way, you mentioned this, but listeners... Lawrence has a very generous download that he does from his website. We'll put it on the show note links where you can download a lot of the, not only papers, but data that he talks about on his website. So we'll put it in the show note links. So tell us what this, how has it changed in history? Has it always been sort of 40, 60 over the past 50 years? 
And then we'll start to dig into how it's performed too over this time period. Was that the second paper or was that part yeah. of the, okay. That was the second part that we did. Yeah. Because I think the 60-40 that you mentioned, that was kind of the, we thought it should be quite stable, 60-40, because everybody talks about 60-40. So that must be it. But when we actually did the time series, we saw that there were periods that actually it was, I think, 75-25 or so for stocks, but also periods where the amount of stocks, I think, went to, now I'm doing it from the top of my head, but to 45% or so. So there is quite some, depending on issuance, of course, but also on the price of the assets. If it's market cap weighted, then that's a big part of it. So it's not moving extremely fast. Well, if the prices move fast, then that also moves fast, but also the issuance and the part that becomes investable, because in the end, that's also what is important, of course, when things become, if big markets become investable for international investors, then the pie also gets bigger on uh, part of this global invested market portfolio. So it floats over time. And then talk to me about how's it done? Maybe on the it floats over time part, maybe I could add something to that because it's tempting to see, to like look a little bit from a distance on the picture and think there must be mean reversion. So prices of this asset class will go up and prices of that asset class will go down and it will mean revert to the long run average or so. So we're a bit careful in the interpretation of that because that can be part of it. Of course, if some asset class is overvalued, then you would expect it to go out, but there's quite persistent deviations from it. So we also see that actually issuance or buybacks, that can also drive it and that doesn't always add up to investor returns. If there's a lot of issuance, then investors don't see that as a return. So it can be revert without investors benefiting from it of predicting it correctly. And um, returns, then actually the question that we often got, well, now we know what it looks like, but uh, how did they do? Again, the, over the past 10 years, it is relatively easy to find uh, performance metrics for most of these asset classes. But again, when you go back in time, that was quite difficult. For example, um, real estate, to find what the performance of real estate was in the 60s. And we talk about global real estate in the 60s was quite uh, cumbersome. So we did a lot of going to the library, browsing online, looking for books on this uh, bookfinder.com to find everything uh, out. In the end, we found real return. I don't know whether that's uh, whether real or excess. There are, of course, different ways to look at it. But it's about 4% over this period from 1960 to, I believe we end our sample in 2017 or so. But Adding one or two years to such a long sample doesn't really change the average uh, too much. 4%, I mean, nothing to shake a stick at. That's pretty good. Although in 2020, well, I would have said this maybe last year, after a lot of the tech stocks and expensive stuff has sold off, I imagine the expectations are coming down. But there was a lot of surveys floating around last year that people were expecting north of 15% returns on their portfolio. So they didn't ask me for that, but <laughs> right. And also, you know, people always struggle with nominal and real, I think, in the surveys. So 4% real, tack on, I don't know, 3, 4% inflation, and you get up to that sort of 7, 8% that seemingly every pension fund or institution expects, ballpark speaking. A few other questions we'll just pepper you with. One, which would be a guaranteed listener question. When do you guys going to start to incorporate cryptocurrencies in the global market portfolio? And how are you going to think about that in the coming years? Yeah. So in the, one of the drafts of the paper on returns, we actually included cryptocurrencies. But as you know, as academics, we have to sometimes listen to uh, what uh, reviewers uh, say. And they thought it was distracting to put it in. <laughs> so then we actually took it out. And, but now we got uh, so many people that by hand force it in. So I've seen many of the graphs of the market portfolio with that, that somebody added a slice of cryptocurrencies that uh, we're now working on a new paper where the end product should be 
monthly returns because the previous one that we did on returns was annual returns, which is nice if you want to look at long run averages and these kind of things. But if you want to do really like risk analysis or calculate a beta or something like that, then it's better to have monthly returns. So we're working on that. And now we include also cryptocurrencies. It differs from day to day, but let's say roughly 1% or so of invested market portfolio. But of course, since the volatility is very high, it's more important than maybe it's not a percent of government bonds or something. Its volatility is much higher. So it would count for some of the volatility of the market portfolio, even though the weight is only 1%. So in that sense, the question often becomes, is it an asset? I don't know whether the English word is agnostic for that. So if investors invest in it, then for me, that's it seems that there's many people active in this field and invest in it. Therefore, it has some value. So then it has apparently some value to investors. So I'm not to judge whether they're right in attaching that value to it. It's just funny because everyone comes to markets with their own bias and people often ask about the crypto angle. And the least satisfying response on the planet is when I say, I say, Meb, should I buy crypto or should I include this in my portfolio? And I said, look, if you're struggling with that, and this I actually say, you know, applies to most asset classes, I'm like, just allocate in line with the global market weight. So with crypto, I mean, again, depending on what it's doing today, somewhere between one half of 1% to 1%. And no one wants to hear that. They either want to hear zero, I shouldn't own any of this, or they want to hear I should put half of my net worth in this. And it's like the least satisfying answer, but accurate, I think. That's a good heuristic with which to think about all assets. Should I include gold? Should I include farmlands? Yada, yada. Anyway. To me, it's, uh, I often say it's a starting point. So if you're not investing in an asset, there can be many reasons why not to invest in certain assets. But I think it's relevant to know whether you're underweight relative to the average investor that is investing in it or not. To me, it's a good way to compare your own portfolio against what the average dollar is doing in the world, how they are invested. And that's going to be many reasons to deviate from it. So why doesn't, considering that it's a pretty nice performing portfolio over time, you could have it today in 2022 for, at least here in the US, darn near zero cost, maybe five, 10 basis points. Why don't a lot of people or more institutions just buy the market cap portfolio and be done with it? What's all this extra work for? And this may be a lead through into next part of our conversation on factors, but what's, what's wrong with the market portfolio and why, why shouldn't everyone use it? Because it's aggregated to what all investors do. So I think it's very difficult for me to say that it's uh, wrong. But of course, to get really the market portfolio, I think there are some of these alternative asset classes, you said five to 10, I think, then you're covering about 80% of the market portfolio. Because I think if you want to get exposure to private equity or high yields or something, it's probably more difficult to get at near zero cost, but at least it doesn't have to be very expensive overall for the portfolio level. I think what many investors are doing is looking at whether all these assets are priced correctly, whether the market is right in pricing it. I think there have been um, several studies. I got a lot of feedback when we did this study on the market portfolio. Apparently, if you publish the market portfolio, then you should also think that markets are efficient and that the CAPM works. That is kind of automatically what people attach to that. But we think of it more as a starting point. And I cannot recommend everybody to deviate because if I give the same advice to everybody, everybody should hold a market portfolio. So in that sense, it's a very strong... Uh, but given that I'm not convincing everybody anyway about uh, my investment views, I have a preference that, well, in one of the papers that we did with even a longer horizon, have a preference for cheap assets and assets with good momentum. I think that's for me better. And then if you look at this historically, that uh, the performance relative to the risk has been much better than if you would simply hold the market portfolio. Yeah, we often say, look, it's a pretty awesome benchmark. I personally think that it's going to beat 
in a vanguard sort of way, two thirds of a lot of the portfolios out there. I also personally believe that you can improve upon it with just moving away from market cap weights, perhaps within each asset class. And we do that. We have a strategy that does that. But in general, I think it's a great starting point. I think it's a great starting point for a lot of sort of insights and lessons. One of the biggest ones we talk a lot about, and this applies to every country in the world, we talk about it specifically in the US because we believe the US is expensive right now, but it applies it's even more so in certain countries like Norway or Canada, Australia, where there's a smaller percentage of the world market cap. The Norwegian sovereign fund was out talking the other day in the Financial Times about some of these ideas. But this concept of home bias where people put all their money in their own stock market. And I often say, I'm saying, look, Canadians, you put all your money in these gold miners and cannabis stocks or whatever. I said, you're only a small sliver of the world. A starting point should be the global market portfolio. Then you want to deviate fine. But this as a starting point is usually a pretty great place to be. Anyway, end of rant. <laughs> I think you mentioned the sovereign wealth fund, but in Norway, that one, of course, has the opposite of a home bias because they're not even allowed to invest in any assets that are dominated in the home currency. So to prevent that from happening, well, they have another fund that is doing only the home biased stuff, but they have separate managers for that. But they only invest outside and also even in the Netherlands. So I think the Netherlands is one of the other countries in the world that has the least home bias of all. So I think many large investors from the large pension funds in the Netherlands, they have global benchmarks and Netherlands is, what is it? One and a half percent or something of their equity portfolio. So... Global market portfolio, pretty great portfolio, good benchmark, good starting point. Something else you guys have done a lot of work on, and we talk about sourcing data for the market portfolio as one bear problem challenge. You guys took on a whole next level challenge, which was thinking about factors, but think about factors to the 19th century. So let's start to dig in as we move away from the market cap portfolio to factors. Explain to us what a factor is. Talk to us about what a couple of the factors are. And then we can start to talk about this concept of factor investing for a long time in history. Yeah. So if you think about factor investing, I see it more as like a systematic style of investing where you focus on a certain characteristic of an asset. I think the two most famous factors are value and momentum, where you look at a valuation characteristic of an asset and you compare it with the valuation of other assets. In a very simple way, you could just rank all the assets based on which one on that metric is cheap and which one is expensive. The typical factor strategy would then take a long position in the ones that are cheap and a short position in the ones that are expensive. And that's supposing that you can do a hedge factor. Otherwise, if you are a long-only investor, you would only buy the cheap assets, basically, and you let go of the expensive assets. For momentum, it is focusing on those assets that have performed well. Typically, people take the past year or so. As a starting point, so look at which assets have had the highest returns over the past year, sometimes risk corrected, mostly just plain returns. And then you rank them on best return to low return, and you buy the ones with the best return and sell the one with the worst return. That's basically how simple it is. And you can do that on individual stocks or corporate bonds, for example. All these strategies seem to work across asset classes as well. But what we did for the study that you are referring to is look at this from an asset market perspective. So we are going to look not at individual stocks going back till the 19th century, but looking at markets. So we treat the US market as one asset and US government bonds as one asset, but also then German bonds and French bonds, like entire stock markets or so as assets to do this factor strategies with. 
So what'd you find? What's the takeaways? Well, what was very surprising to us, because many of these studies on the factors across different markets that I just described, they have been already published in the top finance journals. Usually they were, let's say, discovered on US equities first, and then people ventured into other developed markets, emerging markets to see whether this works, but then also across these markets itself. But there's still a lot of people that at least that I talk to that say, yeah, but it could be data mined. How do we know for sure that it's the case? Then we say, well, let's just look at data that hasn't been looked at before, because then you have a real out-of-sample study if you can do that. So that's what my uh, two co-authors and I, what we did, we just thought about how much data is there before. Then we went back and got all the data back to, well, some instances to 1800. And we found that these sharp ratios that were documented in the, let's say, more recent literature, typically somewhere from 1980s or so, that the sharp ratios reported there were roughly 0.5 on these factors. And when we went back to 1800s, the sharp ratios were slightly over 0.4, so very close to the 0.5 that were originally documented. So in that sense, we were, at least I was, surprised that it was so similar, because of course, we know the world was very different in those days. But factor investing somehow was pretty close to what, uh, at least the results from that, we saw in more recent periods. I'm putting Lawrence on the hot seat here. What would you say if you had to, of all the factors, do you have any favorites or do you have ones that you say, you know what, as a researcher, as an investor, I think there's a little more justification, robustness for this. I know Robico is a big low vol shop. Do you like all of them or do you think all of them have a shot in the future? Yeah. So maybe that's not the answer you want, but I don't really have a favorite factor because I think, and that's also what we see that there is, well, factors don't always work. There's periods that they don't, and uh, that it's good to have the other factors. And just by saying I have one favorite, that implies that I would let go of the others and then have periods that can be 10 years long that you don't see any return. So I think really our results show that if you have this multi-factor portfolio, that that is way superior to picking one or two of those factors. Of course, I think if I think about underpinnings, what I like is if there is also not only like strong statistical underpinning, but that there's also a good story that is either don't know whether you can say hardwired behavior or institutional effects that seem to be good ways to explain such anomaly. I think for that, well, at least in the past, what is it, 20 years, something that I'm doing research now, it always seems that people say ah, momentum and value, it's easy to arbitrage, it's easy to arbitrage. But when you're in the market, it feels not so easy to arbitrage these things. So even though you know that these, well, at least I believe that these factors are there on the long run, it doesn't come for free. And there are periods, well, I think we both suffered, at least from value, for a little bit of time before the last year. So you have to be quite strong to live through underperformances of one individual factor. Yeah. I mean, that, look, that applies to both factors. So you mentioned value has its time in the sun or momentum or Laval, yada, yada, but also asset classes. People struggle with this just as much where the U.S. outperforms foreign or commodities are underperforming. And I like it really hard for many investors. And this isn't just, I often, people assume that institutions are somehow exempt from this, but we see a lot of these big institutions time after time make similar mistakes as individuals where they chase returns and on and on. I had several presentations in, I think, what was it, early 2009 for clients where the hypothesis on the table was the equity premium is zero. And we, together with a colleague, we had to kind of say, well, no, we think the equity premium is positive. That's just the beginning of 2009. And of course, three months later, the market just went up for 
now. I think it hasn't really come down until the last month, but I think that's how easy it is to look at 10-year past returns and then just say, well, now, because in that time, of course, if you looked 10 years back, the performance actually was close to zero. And yeah, then many were contemplating to just get rid of their entire equity portfolio. Yeah. It's rinse, repeat, man. It happens every cycle over and over and you see the flows and you shake your head and you say, how could people be doing this again? And it happens over and over. What do you think about in general? One of the things you mentioned was 100, 200 years of this data, but then as the factors become known, do you think it's a scenario where they will continue to outperform in the future because of what we just discussed, which is people, the flows chasing things and people being human? Do you think the outperformance will be less because of arbitrage sort of concepts? What's your general like guess as to what the future holds for? Because in my opinion, I think anything but market cap weighting should have a percent or two tailwind just because there's no value sort of link. Things can go just bananas as we saw last year or two in the US. But what's your take? How should investors think about factor investing and do you, like there's certain quant shops out there that think it's possible to tilt or time when some of these look better versus their own history? So a lot of people are saying value looks great now, it's at an extreme spread. I think for many of the returns documented, well, you've seen many backtests in your, in your life as well. Huh? So to actually make money in real life on that, typically I would not assume that in sample or even though you try to correct as good as you can for data mining or for data dredging kind of issues, it seems to be like a prudent assumption to make that out of sample, you would get slightly less than what you found in your in-sample results. But I think given if you look at many of these, like our study finds a sharp ratio of 0.4 or so over this long period, which is not one or one and a half that you sometimes documented. So then I would get a bit skeptical, but I think 0.4, maybe it's a little bit on the high side, but I don't think that's exceptional. And I think something like that would be possible also going forward. And the reason indeed is not that we don't know about it. Although I'm also a bit skeptical that people in the past didn't know. There's also several of these old writings where people are kind of hinting to value at momentum already 150 years ago. But it was, of course, now it's much easier accessible and implementable, all these things. But to actually follow that course and keep doing it, even though it hasn't worked for three or four years, I think that is something that they will especially value momentum, they will keep existing for that reason. And of course, it can be if suddenly everybody becomes rational and switches off that fear and greed kind of boat, it could disappear. I'm not excluding that possibility, but given what I've seen over the past 20 years, I would find it surprising if suddenly that switch goes around and suddenly everybody starts to be more rational in that sense. That seems unlikely to happen. Yeah. That's the one thing we can count on is human irrationality, no matter what happens. And what you said, I think, is also important. It's because I think that's often said, it must be the retail investor. And I'm happy to say that they might be more irrational, but it's not only people who are pushing the buttons at institutions, they're also people. And they also have their career risk and all kinds of incentives to maybe actually follow the same patterns as we see in the data that we call factors. Yeah. I mean, that's a perfect segue into a pretty timely and impactful significant institutional topic. And there's two of them. And we can kind of pick and choose which way you want to go here. But these topics of A, sustainable investing, ESG, and within that is a little subset of 
what we call SIN stocks or SIN companies. Let's dig into the actual data of kind of what you found in some of your research here. I think it's an intriguing question. So there's a lot being said and a lot being done. And I don't know whether it's always for the right or the wrong reasons. So together with some colleagues, we said, so if, let's just ask ourselves these questions and see what we can find sometimes in the data or sometimes on arguments and prior literature. I think one of the things when you talk about these uh, SIN stocks, often the question comes up is, uh, do they get extra returns or not? I think that's something that often is at least what uh, people have on their mind. I think excluding stocks, and does it have to be SIN stocks? Once you start excluding, if you exclude a few stocks of the global market portfolio, probably you're still going to be quite well diversified. If you start excluding more and more, suddenly you're losing diversification. So I think that's one of the things that in one of the papers that we studied, we just quantify also, well, if you're less diversified, that is a cost because you could be more diversified and then you could invest more in equities, for example, because now you increase the risk of your portfolio, but you could have diversified it better and then decreased the risk of the total portfolio. So there is a cost to it. If you exclude a little, maybe not so big, but if you exclude more, then that's going to hurt you. But also depends, of course, what's the expected return of the stuff that you exclude. And many of the SIN stocks, they actually have what we would call favorable factor exposures. So they tend to be the stocks that are value-like, quality-like, and therefore they have a higher expected return than the market has. So if you exclude them, then your portfolio has slightly lower return than the market. You could repair that. There may be other value stocks or quality stocks that you could buy instead of those SIN stocks that you don't want to have in the portfolio. So you can repair it to a certain extent, but if you just do it blindly and naively, just exclude those stocks, you would get also a little performance drag out of that. And then I think the third question, which I think is most difficult to empirically assess is, is there a SIN premium on top of this? And that is a very difficult question. I think that a lot of research and literature search, and it's not easy to kind of get that part out, to disentangle it from all the other effects that we see, because returns are so noisy. And what is considered SIN can also be time varying on top of that. So it's not that easy. But on top of it, there could still be a SIN premium. But I think the primary stance was that what was called a SIN premium until a couple of years ago, my colleague found that this actually, for a large part, was quality exposure. That's, well, that was only the Pharma French three-factor model at that time. So, but if you have this, now have the five-factor model, we could actually kind of explain why this additional performance of SIN stocks was there. Yeah, I mean, I think part of this is challenging from the sense, you mentioned a couple great points. One is, Perception changes over time, of course. Two, I remember looking back at the French Fama industries back to the 20s, and I think two of the top three or five performing industries all time were tobacco and beer. So what do people love? And you can have your own opinion if those are sin companies or not. But a lot of people, the tobacco in general sets them off for various reasons. But you had some insights in particular about ESG, which applied to tobacco companies and kind of who owns tobacco companies and divesting. You want to talk a little bit about that? Because I think it's fascinating. And it's the message you have is often, I don't think, what the assumption of the majority of the media thinks about this topic. I also know that you have, I don't know where you have vested interest, but at least I know where you're from. I think if I heard correctly from the previous talks that you did with other people, that you have a background around the tobacco industry. Yeah, I mean, look, I've never been a smoker. When I was a kid, I used to hide my parents' cigarettes. Like I saw one of those ads from the 80s where, you know, smoking is going to give you black lungs or something. And so I used to literally like hide my parents' cigarettes. And like everyone of our parents' generation, everyone smoked. But 
I grew up in North Carolina, partially in Colorado also, but in North Carolina certainly was exposed to the tobacco industry. But other than that, have no real connection. Mm, okay. But I mean, that was the background that I heard that you were talking about with some other guests. So I can also talk, I am in some sense from different area, but I was also hiding the cigarettes from my parents, <laughs> but at Noahville. And my dad also passed away on lung cancer, maybe 15 years ago now. So that's my personal story. And my mom is still smoking a lot. I don't want to recommend anybody to smoke. That's the first thing I want to say. Europe's much better about this, where on the cigarette packages, they have like giant skull and crossbones. Basically, like they're like, if you smoke this, you're going to die. It's written on it that you're going to die from it. And it has a picture. If you don't read it properly, then you see like a black lung or the different things pictured on it. So then the question becomes, if a person who is smoking that's when one of the papers we ask like is this exclusion effective so if you every day pick up the pack while your kids are trying to hide it for you you see it kills it has a picture of somebody who already died on it and you still decide to smoke is a pension fund that is going to exclude this from their investment portfolio going to be the tipping point to stop have that person stop smoking it could be but i'm not easily convinced about that argument so i think if that's the goal of excluding tobacco stocks, and this could be other sense stocks, then I don't think that's really going to drive it. If it's a moral issue, so for my mother, when I stop by at the airport, I come from Norway, so I can buy tax-free cigarettes. But I don't, because I think it's bad, so you should stop. So I don't want to be involved in this activity. So I don't do it, although I know it would be financially advantageous to do it. So if that's the reason that investors don't want to be associated with it, well, I cannot say much. If you don't want, then that's a preference that you clearly have. That's at least different than thinking that the world is becoming a better place because of it. And I think one of the main special things why tobacco also is an easy target because like, it's bad and there's not really alternative uses that are so great. So it's easy to fit in this system. But tobacco companies, most of the trading, I think one of the main points that we want to make always is the primary market and the secondary market. And tobacco companies have issued shares long, long time ago. Explain primary and secondary for those who aren't... Uh... Okay. So if some companies want to set up a new business, they need money. One way to get money is to ask investors, please give me money. And that's what I call a primary or an issue. You go to the stock market to get new money. But once you have sold your new shares to the market and the market has absorbed them, at that point, the market is selling it to other people based on preferences and whatever. That's what's happening. But the company is not involved anymore because they already got their money when they sold the shares. And they can set up whatever they want to do. So the effects that you have by selling them, maybe you will depress the stock price if enough people are selling a stock compared to other stocks that are not sin will go down. But if you don't have to go to the market to sell new shares, you're not really that affected by the stock price. And I think for tobacco companies specifically, they tend to have quite some cash because they have addicted customers, so they can't really go anywhere. And actually, they're buying back shares. Many of them are buying back shares. So now they're buying back shares a little bit cheaper than they were otherwise doing. There are industries, I think mining, I hear often that there's more capital intense and they might actually need to go to the market to get new capital regularly when they open a new mine and so on. So maybe there, this effect is, but the potential effect that you have as an investor is bigger. But you have to really look at it case by case, because if the company that you're trying to exclude doesn't need any fresh capital, maybe not that effective to do it. So that's one of the things that we looked at extensively. So we also looked at more in general, because often we look, think about the price as investors, yeah? so the return or the price of capital, but also 
we looked once at the quantity of capital. We also did one study actually specifically for tobacco companies, but also in general, how many did more capital flow to good companies, like, I don't know, green companies or what's the opposite of uh, sinful, virtuous companies or so, than to sin companies. And actually, it looks like if you add this all up, that the quantity is about the same that goes to green or brown or sinful or not sinful company. The conclusion is it hasn't happened. So if that is what the world wants, to invest more in better companies that have better ratings or are greener, then the world is not there yet because there is some way to go. The past 10 years, nothing much was effective there. I was joking on Twitter, kind of getting into it. I said, you know, for a lot of people who really are being champions of the cause, I was like, the probably better scenario is to actually be shareholders and then vote. And people, that's like, explodes their brain. I said, you really want to make some impact. That is a potential way to do it. And you're starting to see some activist campaigns in this sort of genre that you wouldn't normally see. Yeah, but it's a bit difficult in the sense that, of course, you need to vote on behalf of many shares to have some impact on these companies. Then you need to collaborate with other investors that have the same view. It also takes effort to actually write up new proposals to kind of dig into it. So I think some investors are more keen on saying, well, for example, the tobacco company is less likely to switch to become a good company. So I'll put my effort in something else than to spend time on them. If you find 51% of investors who agree with you that uh, they should put, I don't know, less nicotine or I don't know, but do things that are, in the end are better for the world, let's put it that way, then you could influence the company by definition, but you need to gather enough shareholders to agree with you that this is the way to go. There's also all kinds of political issues, whether this is something that we should want, but that can be a political issue. But you can for sure exert efforts. I think even what is often missed here is that once the share is issued, often that's it. You can vote, so you should and talk, but bonds, they mature. Stocks don't mature, but bonds mature. Assuming that many of these sin companies also want to keep their capital structure the same, they need to roll the bonds every, I don't know, five years, 10 years, depending on the maturity that they have. So if you want companies to change and you're a corporate bond investor, you could all the time at least say, well, you change this incrementally, this better. Otherwise, when you have to roll your next bond, I'm not going to buy it. At least that's a fresh capital moment when new fresh capital can be directed to the company or to another company that behaves better. So I think also for bondholders, that is a bit underutilized maybe, that they have also some impact, letting their voice be heard to the company management to do well. And I think that's something we will see. Yeah. Yeah. I got this one more thing I wanted to ask. Robico put out a monster 120-something page expected returns PDF and had a big climate angle. As you think about a framework for kind of constructing return expectations, talk to us a little bit about how you think about that. Does mean reversion play a role? Is climate is something we should be thinking about? How do you kind of think about the future being different from the past? And what are the main levers most investors should consider? Yeah. That's what I've been doing over the past, uh, I think this was our, the last one was the 11th publication or so. So every year we update it and we have kind of a five-year horizon on when we think about exposure. Not too long, but also not too near term. But we do, we have a study on really, what you call like equilibrium risk premia or something. So on the really long run, where we use this 200 years of data, if we have it for certain asset classes, and we try to use uh, economic theories to get like a long run picture, unconditional or like a really long run picture. But then... We believe that the market is not always in equilibrium and has exactly those risk premia that we have seen on the long run. So our second building block is valuations at the asset class level now. Eh? So we look at whether equities are expensive, bonds are expensive, 
corporate bonds are expensive, these kind of things. That's a very important component because I think we can say that long-term interest rates on the long run should be 4%. But if they're currently 0%, then the yield we get is closer to zero to the 4% that we think we get in the really, really long run. So valuation is important. And then we have a component that is also trying to look at, is there a reason for this valuation? So a macro component, our macro economists look at, is this cheap for a reason, so to say, or expensive for a reason? Try to put this valuation into perspective and see whether that is like it's overly expensive or overly cheap, given the macroeconomic outlook that we have. So that is the main component that we had for 10 years. And last year, we also introduced a climate component. Then we look also again at the asset class level and not at whether within the energy sector there's winners and losers or something, because that's another level. But at the asset class level, which asset classes may be more affected by climate change than other asset classes? The first thing we actually went back to look at is to think, well, how can climate change returns? Because it's not maybe that obvious. So I teach also a class at the Rasmus University in the Netherlands on finance one, so the basic principle. So I thought, well, if I teach that to the students, I will also put my basic formula of pricing in this report and look at what part of climate will affect the cash flows that we need to discount and what part will affect the discount rate. Because in the end, it's cash flows that we need to discount that will determine the price of an asset and then the return of an asset. Because I hear a lot of stranded assets. I'm not sure whether that's a term that you hear a lot in the US, but stranded assets, that's typically something that I hear a lot. To me, that sounds really like something that would be a cash flow effect, because that means that there's less cash flows than originally were predicted before we knew it were stranded assets or something. Once we realize that those assets are stranded, there's a whole market looking at, they know what oil reserves are and et cetera, et cetera. So do you know better than the market what is stranded or not? That's the important question, I think, for an active manager uh, then. But once that is known and you have to take that out of the numerator, then the expected return is again the same because the discount rate hasn't really changed. So from that point on, the expected return is the same as for other assets. The other thing is if you think it's more risky, these carbon-intense assets, you have to discount them at a higher rate. That's also a possibility. If you do that, then the expected returns on brown assets is higher than on green assets. So there's consequences to kind of thinking about this way on what this means for investors. So we are putting this piece together. And I think how we see it now is that the current discount rate and the one that we think that will be there in equilibrium or so, if it's properly priced, we think that the discount rate can go up further for carbon-intense companies, which means that the path that it goes up, that is not good for brown companies on average, right? Because then you start discounting against a higher rate, which means that the price is going down. That's what we think that carbon-intense assets will do a bit worse than uh, green assets or how you say non-carbon intense assets, which would be negative for emerging markets and high yields because they tend to be a little bit more carbon intense than developed market equities and investment grade uh, corporates. And of course, the big thing that is in between here is of also, let's say, oil price because it can be carbon intense, but if oil price is going up, as we have seen in the past, then those assets through the cash flow effect will do very well because now the cash flows that are streaming into these companies. So that's still, of course, also an effect that is there. But we try to at least try to put a little bit of more structure on the discussion because we hear a lot of discussion about it, where these expected returns are coming from and how this will evolve over time. That's what we tried to do in that report that you are referring to. So what are the big returns, baby? Tell me what asset class is going to do 20% a year for the next five years and what's doing negative 10. Anything in general looks better than historical and what looks worse than historical for the next five years? So since the starting point is actually quite low, eh? so because of the risk-free rate is quite low, the starting point is so low that there's actually not a lot that is 
looking better on the nominal terms than historically was the case. Our expectations for commodities are quite okay because I don't know it's top of my heart whether it's exactly on the long run equilibrium, but if it's not, then it's at least very close to it. Because also in the energy transition that we see, a lot of commodities are needed to build all those windmills to the electrification that we see and the car fleet, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of mining and other industrial metals that are necessary for that to happen. So we think that commodities have also been lagging a bit if you don't take the last year into account, but like the 10 years before, commodities have been lagging a little bit on uh, prices, but also on investments from that side. There hasn't been a lot of investment in new mines or new activity. So we think that commodities are closest to the long run average, so like have a quite high return. I think for equities, we are close to is it 5% or so in dollar terms. I'm not sure whether that is making you enthusiastic. I've heard you say you expect 0% for the next 10 years or so. So maybe that it's very optimistic to come up with five. But to me, that's just US. Foreign, I think, is very attractive, in particular emerging markets. But I think commodities, I'm sitting here and I tweeted the other day where I said in Los Angeles, we had, I said, I spotted $6 per gallon gas in LA last weekend, which is really high. But as commodities are kind of ripping here and across the board, with the exception, of course, of probably precious metals, it reminds me of the full cycle. You know, early 2000s, commodities were institutionalized really for one of the first times ever, broadly speaking, partially because they had great performance. And then every institution and their mother started adding commodities. And then what happened? Commodities had horrible performance for a decade. You started seeing all the institutions, many of them not all of them, many of them start to divest and say, okay, well, that was a mistake. We don't think commodities are a great investment. Just in time for commodities to have a nice run here again. We'll see how long it lasts, but we poll people regularly just to kind of get a feeling and almost no one has any meaningful allocation to real assets in general, other than their own house. So REITs, commodities, tips, that area is often very under allocated, it seems like. Yeah. I think especially for, maybe that goes even back to my PhD thesis that I think I wrote back in early 2000s, where I was also a chapter on commodity investing, where I think if you want to protect your assets against inflation, well, one of the sources of inflation is commodity prices. So if you're investing in that, then at least there is a partial protection coming from that part that you can at least protect some of your assets against inflation. That's at least an attractive property of commodity investing. Apart from that, currently we expect it to also have a high return. It correlates nicely with purchasing power. So, uh, Yeah. Circling back to the very beginning of the conversation, how do you handle commodities as part of the global market portfolio? That's notoriously a little squishy to weight commodities. Is it based on production or economic use? How do you kind of slot them in? That's the one that I annually update. The reviewer demanded us to kick it out, which was quite special because that was also in one of the first drafts we made estimates to put it in. But then in the later version, when we looked at the returns, so part two of that project, then we put it back in ourselves. Then we looked again at financial investments. And we think how we reasoned is that tankers of oil, that is not really financial investments. So basically, it's derivatives that you can see as financial investment. But derivatives, somebody is long, the other one is short. So zero, that is net. So what we did is we looked at gold that is held for investments and silver. And I think there's a few more Platinum and palladium, I think. So that's the four metals. And then we looked at estimates of investors that hold commodity-linked investment products. So that are kind of long commodities on that side. Compared to gold and silver, that was not a very big 
part of that portfolio. So I don't know from the top of my head what total share was, but we included it in the last draft. And now we're going to add cryptocurrencies to that same basket of commodities, kind of. Although, of course, it's not a physical commodity. But mainly it's gold. And I think it's fair because many investors do hold gold as part of their portfolio, like a long-only gold investment. I think that makes sense to have it into that. Yeah, and for derivatives, it's just a bit complicated. And we don't want to put oil tankers in. What else are you thinking about? What's interesting to you? What's got you confused? What's got you excited? What's got you depressed? All those emotions. What are you working on? You mentioned in the beginning real estate, because there's so much going on in the crypto that I thought I also have to think a little bit more about it. But what I was thinking about is that you now see that real assets are being tokenized, not at extremely large scale now, but there is tokenization of residential real estate going on in the US specifically. The nice thing about it is that when it's on the blockchain, it's public. So I was digging up myself, again, looking at the what is it, block scout or whatever to look up that data. So I have a working paper just out on how investors that invest in tokenized real estate, what their portfolios look like and whether houses worth $50,000, whether they are really kind of lead to fractional ownership. Because I think that's the promise of this decentralized finance that now you can own a few bricks of a house. It seems that that actually is the case. So I was surprised that this market, at least in the initial study that I did and put out, that the market is living up to the promises. So I expect more on that side. Also thinking about the project, because now also stocks are tokenized, so you can trade them actually 24-7, the tokens of these stocks, individual stocks, that is. I recently heard that uh, many of the stock return is earned during the night rather than during the day. Now we can also look at if we have the tokens that trade 24-7, we can actually look what part of the night these returns are made. Is it based on information or what's going on? Or maybe it's just the opening that is causing it. That could also be the case, of course. But I'm trying to look a little bit on the tokenized sphere. That's one area I think is promising more than, for me, the NFTs. And so it's not that interesting. I'm more into the real assets that can also be on the blockchain. And of course, we already talked about sustainable investing. I think that's something that is on my agenda, a big part of my research agenda as well. So I'm thinking more now these days about impact investing also. So how can you, not excluding, but how can you have real-world impact with your investment portfolio? And I think that's very exciting to think about, but I don't have any answers yet. I was going to say, what's the preview there? I don't know. For example, when I think about governments, if you think about it in a, let's say, ESG perspective, typically the countries that come up that are very high on this ranking is, for example, Norway, the country I live in. I don't think we are the ones that need the money the most in the world to actually make the world better. I think there are governments that need the money more to actually change part of the world for the real better. I think this current ESG frameworks, they are good to think about who will pay me back, who is responsible with my money. But I don't think that is where you have the biggest impact for every dollar that you invest. So I'm more thinking about which, how can we characterize countries where there is a big gap when you think about sustainable development goals or something like where there's big potential to make progress and where it is likely that the money doesn't end up in the wrong pockets, but that you actually will have some positive influence on these countries. So that's what I'm now trying to get my head around, how to think about that and how to structure that in an investment portfolio. So I think that's exciting to think about not only who will give the money back, but who needs the money to do something good. That is kind of the idea behind it. Yeah. What's been your most memorable investment you've been involved with? Anything good, bad in between? You remember, of course, the span of your lifetime? Yeah. The thing is, you talk to many CIOs on the podcast. Now you're talking to a researcher. So I'm actually not a PM or a 
choosing a lot of investments. So one that I think is most memorable to myself is when I was, I think, probably nine years old, something like that, maybe 10. There was on the news that the US dollar, at that time, we had guilders in the Netherlands, so it's pre-Euro time, that it fell with, I forgot, 50% or something. There was a big drop, maybe it was uh, 86, something like that. And then I went, I pulled two guilders out of my uh, piggy bank, I think you call it then. I went to the local uh, branch of the bank and I bought one dollar. And at that time, everything was without commissions or anything. So I just went there to buy one dollar because I thought the dollar was a value investment for myself. And I was very proud coming back home to actually show everybody that I was now into currency management. Of course, I think the dollar at this day is still about at the same level as it was when I bought it then, but I found it very fun. I came to realize that this is also something that kind of how this financial markets work. That from that moment already, I was sparked my interest in financial markets, how it works and what determines the value of certain assets and so on. So that's what always stuck with me. It's a great lesson. Like thinking about currencies for many people tends to be a challenging concept when you start to think about investments. But from a practical standpoint, we used to give away, you can find them on eBay, a lot of the hyperinflated currencies from Zimbabwe and other places, you can buy them and pick them up. And it's a fun reminder of how certain currency systems work, etc. Lawrence, this has been a whirlwind tour from the global market portfolio to your piggy bank to ESG to factors and everything in between. We'll definitely have to do this again sometime. But in the meantime, where do people go? We'll add the show note links, but best places to keep track of what you're up to, your writings, what's going on, what's the best spots? The best spot is to look at the homepage from me at Erasmus University. That's where, when I have a new working paper, I post it there. But most of the working papers in the end end up at SSRN. So if people are happy to look at SSRN, that's where they will see it coming past as well. So I think that's the best spot to look at it for research from my side. And you're also fun to follow on Twitter. So listeners will post your Twitter handle as well. Ah, Yeah, of course. There I also promote other people's work that I think is interesting to have a look at because it's more than just the research that I do myself there. Yeah. Lawrence, it's been a blast. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for the invitation. Thanks. Podcast listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. If you love the show, if you hate it, shoot us feedback at themebfabershow.com. We love to read the reviews. Please review us on iTunes and subscribe to the show anywhere good podcasts are found. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. Good investing.